Welcome back to the Collectability Podcast with Rebecca Ross, Vice President, Head of Sale at Christie's Auction House here in New York City. In part one, Rebecca shared her insight into the watch auction world and gave us some predictions for upcoming sales in this important season of international watch auctions in Hong Kong and, of course, New York. We have much to look forward to. But let's take this opportunity to learn how these incredible watch auctions are actually created. But before we do that, let's listen to Rebecca's answer to the question that we left you with at the end of part one. Where do you see the watch auction market going in the next five to 10 years? That's a really great question. When I started in this business 10 years ago, auctions were huge. I mean, there was 400 plus lots in each sale. There was no online auctions. And it was so different in terms of having zero digital capabilities. Nowadays, you know, obviously we're shifting quite quickly into the digital era. There's far more online sales. In some seasons, we don't have a live sale. We only have an online sale. And I see, you know, in addition to the digital capabilities ramping up, more online auctions happening more frequently, I think the offerings are becoming far more niche. So you're having less lots, but the lots are more tightly curated. So um, you're having more thoughtful auctions, uh, dedicated auctions. I sincerely hope that live auctions stay around for a lot longer because I'm a big fan of the spectacle and I'm a big fan of people coming together and enjoying and the community that it creates. So I hope that that will continue. I hope so too. This brings us now to really the next part that I really want to dive a little bit deeper into, and that's the whole working behind a watch auction, how are auctions assembled, curated and sold. Yes, And I think that our listeners will be interested to know about that because we all sort of take auctions for granted now, because especially now with the extraordinary increase in the number of online auctions, we just go online, have a look at watches, or do we want to buy this? But so much work goes in to making these things happen. Absolutely, yes. So let's just get straight down to the nitty gritty. And can you just talk us through the stages of putting an auction together. Sure, with pleasure. Well, we have two live auctions a year in New York and two online auctions as well, running simultaneously. Sort of there's a June live sale, which runs next to the June online sale and the December live sale runs next to the December online sale. So you've got to put together two sales within six months. Let's say we're having our auction in June. Business getting used to be really... February, March, April. Now it's all year round. Mm. I mean, I'm continuously sourcing for year round auctions. That's something that's changed and that's ongoing in the process of sourcing. And then once you have your watches together, the next step, obviously, is, well, when you've done the authentication process, which is also well, extremely we, we, yes, important. Yes, we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Yes. Um, so you've authenticated the watches. You've got them in your office. You've curated the sale. And I'm sort of browsing over these instances quite quickly, but each one takes 
a good amount of time sure. and effort and really team effort as well. Then you've got to photograph them all. And then once you photograph them all at the same time, you catalog them all, you write the essays, you research for the essays, and then you can start producing the catalog. And so the catalog production comes pretty much towards the end of your deadline. And it's always, and John will remember this, a rush mm -hmm. um, and a mad sort of uh, race to the end. So you produce the catalogue with the catalogue production team. And when it's all said and done, it should be online three weeks before the sale for people to view. So it's just a constant flow, isn't it? It's a constant yes. finding, cataloguing, producing the beautiful catalogue, selling. So it's absolutely nonstop. And I think that people don't really appreciate that, that it's not like you're a fashion designer, that you're coming out with one or two collections a year. You're constantly having to come yes. up with collections And then, of year. course, not only auction, not only the live auction and the online auction, but we have private, private sales, sales as well. So let, let me ask you that question then. Um, what's the difference between a public auction, that is a live or an online auction, and a private sale? Well, private sales are geared towards um, clients that would like to sell their watch either anonymously or they don't want to necessarily wait until the mm -hmm. next auction to sell their watch. Uh, let's say it's January and they don't want to wait till June. I mean, we offer the service to sell it privately much, much sooner. Um, so private sales can have a lot of advantages. But then, of course, there's the downsides as well, which is that you're not really showcasing your watch as a seller to the wider audience um, at auction. So it really depends on, on the motive of the seller mm -hmm. as to which platform they choose to sell. I'm sure you must see through private sales some very important timepieces that you say, oh, God, I wish this was the headline watch for my auction. So it must be quite hard if the owner is saying, no, no, I just want the money. Just sell it. <laughs> yes. Does that happen from time to time? Yes, or? from time to time. And, you know, we're advisors as well. So if I feel like, you know, it's going to perform much better in a, in a live sale, I will always give that advice. Right. Ultimately, it's not fully my decision. Okay. No, of course, that's understandable. Well, let's just go back to some of these things that you've just mentioned, because you sort of swept over quite a few important <laughs> things. And the first, which is Obviously, the $6 million question that everybody wants to know the answer to is how do you source these watches? Because you've got to come up with an enormous number of watches in a very relatively short time. I mean, you've got your sales in New York, but there's all these other international sales for Christie's going on all over the world, aren't yes, there? Yes. So, so how do you find these watches? Um, it's, as you say, it's an ongoing process. I do a lot of travel around the world. I am uh, meeting with clients nonstop in New York and everywhere else. And it's a constant treasure hunt. Mm -hmm. But that is what is so thrilling. And every season we manage to find an extremely rare watch or rare watches to add to the sale which only propels you more for the next season. So it's really fun. It's not easy, but it's a great deal of fun. Well, that's the holy grail, isn't it? To find an extremely rare, fresh-to-market timepiece. And, yes. and I mentioned in, in, in part one that you have a job that is probably quite enviable to a lot of people listening today, which is that you travel the world, literally, to find these pieces, treasure hunting all over the place. And I'm just wondering, could you tell us a couple of things? For example, where do you like traveling to? Where have you found some interesting pieces? Ooh, um, all over, really. I mean, 
Boy, the last place I went to was Mexico City. Uh-huh. That was my most recent. Did you get a phone call from somebody <laughs> or did you get an email? That, we and- actually have regional offices. Okay. So we have a regional office in Mexico City and a regional rep who helps us kind of go towards the clients there that would like to sell their watch or would like to buy a watch. And so we travel to these regional offices and we have events and we meet with these clients. So... So I'm not sure if it's this particular story or if you could share another story of where did you suddenly have to go somewhere to have a look at a watch and it turned out to be very exciting and unexpected? Yeah, it was um, back in 2018 and it always sticks in my head because I remember John saying, you better get on that plane. Wow. Because I got a cold call and I always pick up the cold call. Never, never let that let that ball drop. Because you just never know who's going to be on the end of the you phone. You never know. And so I picked up the phone and it was three siblings mm-hmm. um, from San Francisco. So not even that far away, really. And they had inherited their mother's watch, but they really didn't know what it was at all. So I asked them to give me some kind of description for me to analyze what this might be. And one of the daughters said, well, it's gold. Okay. Um, <laughs> and it makes a chiming noise. Oh my goodness. And I thought, Oh, well, it must be a repeater of some sort. So my ears picked up. Yes. And then they told me that it was purchased for their mother in 1930. (gasps) So I was like, okay, a repeater from the 30s. Where are you? I'm coming. And John said, yeah, you're bigger than that plane. (laughs) I remember him clearly saying that. Um, So I, I went to San Francisco the next day and I was absolutely blown away by what I saw. And what was so special is that even I had never seen it before. And I, let alone the siblings. So it was a Patek Philippe, of course. It was a tonneau-shaped, minute-repeating wristwatch with Breguet numerals from 1930. So I took it for auction with great pleasure. I brought it back to the office and I researched it and actually found out there was like no more than 11 of these watches made and only five had ever been discovered. And it's those kinds of stories that make you feel even in such a busy industry that we're in now with dealers popping up online every two minutes and auction houses, new auction houses coming up, that there are still rarities that are unknown and undiscovered out there. Well, that's the treasure hunt, isn't it? And that's the joy of what you do, as you said. So you've got this incredible timepiece. You've brought it back to the office. How on earth do you put an auction estimate on something (laughs) like that? Because as you said, very few of them have ever come up in the market before. Yes. Here you have something that's been in the same family Mm -hmm. from the very beginning, which as we all know is in itself something that another holy grail that we're looking for. Yes. Um, remarkably, actually, just to go back to that, the mother who inherited the, oh, well, she didn't know, she was given it as a gift, relied heavily on the minute repeater because she was visually impaired. Oh, how wonderful. So it was actually wonderful to hear that yes, somebody that used was the used. function that yes. it was intended for. Exactly. That it you was don't intended really for. Very often, actually. Because we forget that, don't we? Yeah. That minute repeaters were created because before electricity, which is a relatively new invention for us today, uh, people had to hear the time yeah. or feel it. Right. That's the other way. Right. Um, so that was pretty amazing. That's but, amazing. Yes. But the estimate, the estimate that we actually put on it was very conservative. We chose an estimate of three hundred to 500,000 based on how we felt the market was going to respond. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And actually they responded much, much better. I think it sold for over 700,000. Wow. 
Yeah, and 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 it really changed the lives of these three of kids. Of course, it's a life changing sum of money. Absolutely, they it were is. so thankful to us, and that is something I hold very dear. I'm sure, I'm sure, and that's what is so incredible. And I guess the market will dictate a price for a watch at the end of the day, won't it? Yeah. I mean, that's what you've got to rely on. I mean, you, you, you've got to estimate what it's going, which is why it says estimate and you're yes. given a range because it's impossible to put this is going to sell for this much money. Yes. And usually, you know, it can be a little bit misleading sometimes because estimates at auction can be very conservative. Obviously, the auction houses, we, we, we want them to sell and we want them to sell well. But ultimately, it's, it's really the market, the buyers who decide what the market price is at the end of the day. And that's why the auction market is so important because we all, like us here at Collectability, all of us, we're always watching the auction markets because we want to see what is the market willing to pay for a piece. Exactly. The auction houses and these auctions are really important. Yes, yes. It's a wonderful way to learn if you're sort of coming into this business or you just want to get to know the market come and visit the auctions and follow them. A hundred percent. And that's what we always say. If people ask us the question, how do I learn about watches? We'll say, follow the auction markets, look back at old auctions, get hold of catalogues. And most importantly, what we talked about in the last episode, go and look at the watches yourself in person, pick them up, feel them, feel the difference between the brands. Exactly. Because it's a tactile thing, isn't it? It really is. Let's talk a little bit about the process again. People don't really appreciate how much work goes into this. Let's start with cataloguing. Everyone who begins as a specialist has to catalogue. Is that correct? You, that's yes. how you learn your trade. That, that is right? how you learn. You open up the watch, you feel it, you ultimately, after a, a while of doing it, get to understand what it should feel and look like, mm-hmm. that is your education. There is no better education, is there? Absolutely Quite not. frankly, than looking at a watch, taking it apart and really understand. Yeah. And cataloguing the watches is is really quite in depth. I mean, you have to catalogue the dial, the movement, the case. Um, You have to catalogue the era it was produced. Uh, and and sometimes even the, the, the economic situation that was happening mm-hmm. at the time it was mm-hmm. produced for the mm-hmm. essay. Uh, I mean, it's a world of information that goes into cataloging. And it's a little bit grueling sometimes because, you know, sometimes you're under the gun and you have 20, 30 watches sometimes that you have to catalog by the deadline every day. Wow. So I felt most of the time that I didn't have as much time with these beautiful things that I would have liked to have had just because of all the deadlines looming. Of course. But that's just the nature of the beast. We talked a little bit about how you you put a price on these pieces, but how often does, dare I say it, a fake (laughs) timepiece come across your desk or what we also call a Frankenstein watch that's been put together with different pieces? Yes, quite a lot actually. I will say, and more and more these days. Really? Yes. So and you have are, to know what you're looking at you to really be able to do. identify those. Especially these days, they are becoming quite good. So you, you really do need to be very scrupulous in your, in your process of authentication. This is Rebecca Ross, and you're listening to my interview with Tanya Edwards for Collectability. So 
that's a lot of pressure on you guys to get it right because oh, people are looking to auction houses to have got it right. Of course, of course. And we have a team of, I think right now, 22 specialists around the world and we all come together and discuss things together sometimes. So there's a wealth of knowledge at Christie's and we also have a lot of experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of our specialists have been a lot longer than me. <laughs> well, that's right. It's experience. And that's that's something that we can't emphasize enough. It's time under your belt looking at these timepieces. But what about stolen timepieces? How often does one of those come across your desk? Because that's something that people are, you know, we all know that, that that's an issue. Yes. It can be an issue. Yes, yes. It, no, actually, not as much as uh, Frankenstein's. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yes. Luckily. Oh, few, few, <laughs> few, few. Okay. Well, you talked a little bit about, if we're lucky enough, to find a big collection that's really going to be the heart of an auction. Mm. Um, you talked a little bit about that in the first part. So you've got a large collection of watches, but they're not all necessarily going to sell in your auction. So here we're talking about New York. Sometimes some of those watches will go to Geneva or Hong Kong. Yes. How do you decide where a watch or a selection of watches are going to go? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the main factor that we look at is uh, curation. So these watches are likely going to be put into a sale with other watches of various owners. So you need to make sure, A, the other half of the sale doesn't already have those models. Mm-hmm. Um, and does it fit in, in the best way possible for them to sell in the best way possible? You want to really showcase them in their best light. So curation is a big part of it. And also different locations around the world do have different markets. I think there are some timepieces that are better sold in some cities than others. So that's really, really a process of elimination, I would say. That makes sense. That makes sense. I'm sure there are times when a watch will come up for sale and the owner has gone to a couple of auction houses and said, look, I've got this watch, found this watch. I mean, you were lucky that day that those three sisters rang you. Yes, pick up the cold call. <laughs> pick up the cold call. But there are times, of course, when very well-known pieces come to auction and the auction houses are fighting to get hold of that piece, oh, to yes. put in their auction, to be a signature piece of the auction. Mm. And I have no doubt that things can get sticky when houses are willing to pay any sum of money to get their hands on that timepiece. And as much as it would be really interesting <laughs> to talk to you about some of these knockdown fights that must go on. I'm not going to press you here, but can you give an example of a winning watch that you felt particularly good about? There are a few, and these pitches that you are launched into, quite literally, <laughs> with the family or the owner of the watch, they are carefully put together. We put together a proposal that sometimes takes months to do, mm-hmm. to present to to the client in a certain way. Um, and of course, the other auction houses are doing the same thing. So right. it, it can get very sticky and messy, as you say. But funnily enough, it's the ones that you don't win that you remember. Of course. Because it's so fiercely competitive sometimes that you can't believe you lost it. I mean, I'm being totally frank now. Um, and you win some and you lose some. I mean, But you must get very emotionally involved with this process. Yes, yes, you try not to. But I mean, it's hard when you, when you, you need to make your numbers for the auction. And, mm-hmm. and this is an extra, extra special timepiece that oh. you must have. But it's the ones that get away that are certainly the most memorable. 
Dare I ask you if you would say which got away? Unfortunately, I can't. I thought not. (laughs) But it was worth asking. You never know. You never know. It must be hard as well, going back to these clients, to maintain a relationship between both buyers and sellers, because that's what you're doing. In a way, you're also almost like a, a realtor. Almost. I mean, much more, much more, much more interesting what you do, I have to say. But um, how do you do that? How do you maintain this relationship between buyers and sellers? Yeah. Because they have their own agendas, don't they, for obvious reasons? Yes. I mean, you, you, it's experience, really. As I said, my clients are my friends Mm -hmm. most of the time. and, um, (laughs) And it's a delicate dance, really. But you learn to listen to the client's needs and concerns and just try and answer them as best you can on both sides. So that so that that makes total sense. And I know that we talked a little bit in the last episode about how some of these clients have become great friends of yours. And there's a, a very, very, very important relationship between the specialist and, and, um, and the client. I'd like, if it's OK, just to go back a little bit to how you source watches. You did mention, you gave some idea in the last part, but let's talk a little bit more about that because I find it so hard to get my head round the volume that you need to get hold of. So we've got the cold call, which is like the magic... (laughs) The magic call. The magic, magic call that we're all waiting for. Or or it could be an email. Somebody says, oh, I've just found this. Yes. You go, I'll be right there. (laughs) No matter where it is in the world. It happens. Um, but where where would you say you get the you find the most most number of watches? They really come from all different mm-hmm. places, and it's it's kind of equal. A number of people come directly to Christie's because we are one of the leading auction houses in the world. And then I also have my client lists, mm-hmm. which I you know I'm in constant contact with my clients who like to buy and sell frequently. And then of course you have other departments at Christie's. There's a lot of cross department business being done. I mean, there's people from the art departments that want to buy and sell, you know, so more business gets generated through other departments at Christie's. And then, as I mentioned before, you have the estates and appraisals department. There are huge estates of belonging to people that that multi-department categories. Of course, they have art and furniture and watches and jewellery, but a lot comes through that too. So it's it's from a variety of places. Um, And again, it's 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 an all year round ordeal. Ordeal. (laughs) Oh my goodness. It's almost too much. It's very interesting, all these different resources that you have at Christie's that are feeding pieces to you as well. Yes. So that makes complete sense. It really does. Now, How do you stay abreast of market changes and continue to innovate your auction sale strategies? Yes. Well, I mean, like fashion, let's take that for example. Mm -hmm. Um, There are different trends every season, right? So I'm not a fashionista, so I won't try and tell you an example of that. But there are different trends. And just like fashion, there's different trends in what people want from watches. So each season, you just have to be aware of what the market wants and try and speak to that in the best way possible. And I always try and think outside the box every season to bring something new, uh, something exciting, whether that's uh, a new single owner collection that hasn't been seen before or um, a thematic auction of some sort um, or, or even a collaboration uh, with, with, with 
with another entity in some way. I mean, there's so many things you can do to create an auction, but you just have to be creative. I'm sure. I'm sure. So, so can you? What what sort of trends are you seeing right now? Well, what what's, what are people looking for right now? Um, as I mentioned before, sort of for vintage watches, I think we're looking at a much more particular audience. Um, there's a huge shift towards the independent watchmakers, mm-hmm. as I'm sure you're aware. Um, and so uh, those are the those are the two sort of things that stand out to me. And then there's a big resurgence as well in sort of 90s, um, 90s era I'm seeing. Um, and I love the fact that um, a Breguet in my last sale from the 90s, a minute repeater, sold so well because it deserved it. But I know five, ten years ago it wouldn't have done. Um, so I'm definitely seeing a resurgence of that era as well. It's so funny because the 90s was really my era at Patek. And it's so funny for me to hear it now described really? as an era, a vintage <laughs> era. But at least I know the watches from that period. And yes, it was extremely exciting. I mean, I can only talk for Patek, of course. Yes. But that was an extraordinary decade yes. where Philippe Stern um, was really in charge and really really doing exciting things for the brand and coming up with 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 new movement innovations and advertising and marketing and everything went into one mm. wouldn't it be bundle. cool to have an auction just from the 90s i think it would be great it would yes. be great it would be. Okay, there's your next... Thanks for the th- idea. That's it. That's your next That's your next <laughs> themed auction. That would be... People would go crazy over I that. would go crazy. I would love that. Absolutely. Because there's so much diversity in the 90s that people just don't realise. It, it reminds me in many ways of like the 40s, when, when, which was a golden era for, say, Pac-Tech, where, where, where the great design was coming because it was... After the war, people were getting excited. They mm-hmm. wanted a fresh start in the 50s. Yeah. So it's... Yeah. Uh, um, there you go. Oh, thank you. So anyone out there who has um, a watch from the 90s, you know who to talk to. <laughs> or us first, actually. I'm sorry, I'm giving away. What am I thinking? <laughs> um, so what advice do you give to anyone wanting to become a watch specialist? Well, definitely read as much as you can. Um, go to as many events within the community that you can. Immerse yourself as much as possible in the product whether that be going to auction exhibitions or making friends with people that have great collections and just being part of the community that way. I think talking about watches with your friends and um, getting involved in sort of forums. I remember growing up, my father was really big into time zone and he would be on time zone nonstop talking about watches. Mm -hmm. And it just becomes... It becomes a great pleasure and a hobby. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the best way to learn when you're really enjoying it. I think that's what makes collecting watches different from any other collectible item. I mean, I only know watch collectors, but they are obsessed and passionate about what they do. And um, as you said, there's so many forums where you can go and talk. In fact, we just recently launched our own forum on collectability. Oh, fantastic. So there's another platform where you can just ask questions about Patek, talk about Patek, Wonderful. tell us how you're feeling. Um, <laughs> if I could offer a cup of tea, I would, but I can't. Um, it really is, isn't it? It's so important to learn. And I love the fact, and I'm sure you're seeing this yourself, that there's so many younger people wanting to learn about fine timepieces, which when I started in the industry, that was not the case. Yes. It was only, I hate to say it, but it was older people because you had to be able to afford one of these timepieces. And that's, of course, still the same today, but at least younger people want to learn, Yes, want to know the difference between the brands. And and want to save up. 
to buy it. And want to save up instead of just, okay, now I've made it, I can afford it, so I'll look at it. Yes, Absolutely. Start preparing earlier and work your way up. So, so it it, it is. It, it it's it's very interesting. And it leads me to another question. Here we are, two women talking about watches. Again, when I started, there were very few women in the industry, and and admittedly, it it, it is still very much a man's world because watches are still very much seen as men's accessories. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm sure you've seen some changes that lots more women are becoming more interested, which is wonderful because not only they, they've got the best of both worlds because not only are the men's watches that they can wear and buy but there are exquisite women's watches that they can wear and buy sure so the lines of blood the lines of blood which i think is really really important and are you seeing more women wanting to come into your part of the industry to become a specialist to really immerse themselves in learning about yeah timepieces definitely definitely and i think the fact that i am a woman doing it gives them a bit of confidence. Um, You know, when I started 10 years ago, I was very aware that I was the only female in the office. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure. uh, But I remember that. (laughs) But it was was never a catalyst for me to sort of prove the boys wrong or be better in my work. I just worked hard. I didn't see that gender should be involved. Um, And period. I agree. So I think, I think... With that attitude, um, that is the attitude of more and more women now. Um, they can just do what they want to do. I mean, they don't they don't need the permission, and they don't need to be in the boys' club, and it's for everyone. So I, I think just seeing you, seeing me, is a great um, indicator for them that they can do it too. Good. I'm really glad, and I hope very much that. Um it will also lead to more women's watches coming up for sale. Because although we do say there's a blur, you know, the lines are blurred, anyone can wear anything. And we've seen men wear ladies' watches, so who cares? Anyone can wear whatever they like. But um, we know that there's so many beautiful watches by all the brands that were made for women that are works of art in their own right. Mm. And I'd love to see some of those, more of those, I should say. I would too, actually. I would too. But I have to say, I'm still more interested in the male watches. Mm -hmm. I just always have been. Mm -hmm. I was never a diamond wearing girl. I just um, didn't want that kind of aesthetic. Right. So so while I want to see it too. Yes. Well, it's just more diversity, isn't it? Yes. Just giving us more options to look at. I think that's that's what we want. That would be nice. That would be lovely, wouldn't it? (laughs) Yes. So I have to ask, do you have a grail watch? Is there something, I mean, you mentioned that there's a watch, a pocket watch coming up, which I love the fact that you mentioned a pocket watch Mm. because we're we're such huge fans of pocket watches at Collectability. Yes, yes. But what what is it that you've always wanted? What is it that you've always dreamt of owning? I've always wanted something that had an enamel dial. Oh. You know, they're just so beautiful. And some of them have depictions of stories that are really unique. So I'd love to own an enamel dial in some way. Well, a good way. A good way is to find yourself a nice pocket watch because they all had enamel. Certainly, from the turn of the century up until the forties, they all had enamel dials. I still find it hard to wear them, though. Yeah, I know, and that's the problem. I know. So, but but you're very brave to wear a real enamel dial, especially (laughs) with a young son, (laughs) right? Well, I certainly wouldn't wear wear it it taking him him to school. No, but um, but that. Is my grail in, I in love some it. form. Yeah. I love it. That because looking at a real enamel dial is looking at something completely different, isn't it? You're yes. just drawn Mesmerized. in to a completely different world. Yes, yes, yes. I mean we're I mean, 
A 5131 would be nice. Very nice. <laughs> I wouldn't say no. Just start at the top and work your way down. That's what we like. So so, so, what are you wearing? What watch are you wearing today? Well, it's not a Patek. Well, excuse me. Oh, I'm sorry about that. It's a Rolex. Boom, boom, boom. But uh, it's it's my mum's Rolex from oh, how lovely. the 70s. Oh, it looks gorgeous on you. Thank you. I just, um, I've kind of come into small watches. And it's got a blue dial. Again, recently, it's got a blue lovely. dial. It's just very sentimental to me. And um, just knowing she wore it for so long, you know. I love that. That's a whole joy, isn't it? Hence the ad yeah. thing. You never actually own a Patek. You really <laughs> take you care of it for the next generation. Or a Rolex. Or a Rolex. Or a Rolex. Yes. But but um, but look, that's a smaller watch, isn't it? Yes. That's a lady's watch it's that you're wearing. It's very easy to wear. It's a knockabout watch, as I say. You know, you can wear it every day. Um, but I do have other watches in my collection that don't come out very often. We're happy to see a Rolex too. Don't worry. <laughs> Don't worry. But I'm just going to wrap up now. You'll be pleased to hear. But um, how do you maintain a life-work balance? Because I'm just exhausted listening to you answer these questions. I mean, it's a huge job that you have. Yeah. No, it is. And it certainly doesn't end at 6 p.m. So, you know, it's a round-the-clock adventure, round-the-year adventure, but I wouldn't have it any other way. I mean, it's thrilling. And obviously, I love spending time with my husband and my young boy. But I find also that happiness in one breeds happiness in the other. So I try and keep that in mind. I love that. I think that's something that we can all learn from. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. This is Tanya Edwards for Collectability. Collectability.